I'll begin the talk in the tradition of Sylvia Borstein by sharing with you a cartoon from the New Yorker magazine. <laughs> Being as she, she was on a roll there, and I happened to come upon this cartoon. I'm surprised she didn't share it with you. I asked her if she had, and she said she hadn't. So here we are, back in the zendo. There's a man on his cushion, on his cell phone. No, 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 no. <laughs> this is another one. <clears throat> he says into the phone, I'm crazed with this noble path. Let me get back to you. <laughs> So in a way, uh, I'd never heard language like that to describe what we're doing here. <laughs> I'm crazed with this noble path, but perhaps you can relate to it, actually. I mean, there's something that has been keeping you here for as long as you've been here. Something has been drawing you to sit and to walk and to be in silence. Isn't that amazing? A bit of crazed you know, a bit of being crazed by some, something that is pulling you. I know in my practice in the early years when I was doing a lot of intensive retreats, there was a point where I felt a real shift, and perhaps some of you have felt it as well. There was a shift between me doing a practice and the practice doing me. Perhaps some of you have touched that place where you wake up, you come to the hall, you sit. You can't believe the effort you're making. In my experience, I have always thought of myself as a really good sleeper, and I still think of myself as a good sleeper. But there were times on retreat when four hours was plenty. And I, something would wake me up and say, go sit, and I would go sit. Something else would tell me, you know, more. Let's do more today. Let's extend ourselves a little bit, and I would. And it was so, it was like, who is this person? I didn't recognize her. I didn't know this person. She didn't fit my image of myself. But there I was. It was a way of being that I could not have imagined before I came to practice. So here you are feeling drawn to being in silence, to looking inside, to touching many of the places that perhaps you've read about or heard about in talks, places of calm, of peace, of great joy, great uh, insights, insights into the three characteristics that we talk about all the time over and over again. Tonight I'd like to speak a little bit about what happens when we really begin to touch and see very directly what are called the three characteristics. Uh, 
of every moment of our experience. What are they? The truth of anicca, or change, the truth of change, that our experience is in a constant flux. The truth of suffering, of dukkha, that there is suffering, we feel it in our bodies, we feel it in our minds, and when we try to, when we, when we don't know how to work with it, when we don't know how to let it be or let it go, we suffer. And the truth of anatta, that when we, the, the truth of anatta or emptiness of self, that when we look very closely and we're very honest with ourselves, there is no locatable self. There is no one we can find who is directing or controlling our experience. There's no one running the show. Now, we see these, we, we touch these at times in our practice, and I imagine many of you have. When we do... something begins to shift. And it takes some time for the mind to catch up, we could say. It takes some time to begin to think differently about who we are and our story about ourselves. Having these kinds of insights actually changes the way we think about ourselves, about our lives, how we see what we see, and what we value. If you remember uh, a talk that Carol gave in the, in the last month, um, she spoke about insight as being like looking at that, I forget what it's called, that those dots, you, you know, the, the picture of all the dots, and that if you look at it in just the right way, you'll suddenly see a 3D image, and that that is very similar to an insight into a change, for example. Things are always changing, but we don't notice until suddenly something comes forward in that way, or we see more deeply the truth of change. And when that happens, it has a ripple effect through our bodies and through our minds. It was also said at some point in the retreat, I don't remember who said it exactly, but I'd like to remind us all of this little saying, what we perceive, we think about. What we perceive, we think about. We perceive chocolate cake. And most often, if we really like chocolate cake, we think about whether to eat it or not. Or we perceive a pain in the body, and we think about what to do about it, mostly how to get rid of it. We perceive change, the changing fluid nature of our experience, and What do we think? What do you think when you notice, when you have an insight, 
into impermanence. In my experience, allowing insight to permeate, to really sink deeply into our minds and our bodies is a is an ongoing process. I remember an insight I had on a a retreat many years ago, and it was an an insight into the truth of change. And it, it was astonishing. I was completely astonished. And all I could say to anyone who would listen, (laughs) was when things are gone, they are really gone. And I would just, like, be amazed by the truth of this. Now, this was not anything to write home about, mind you. If I had written home to my family, "Hey, hey, guys, guess what I learned? You know, it would have meant nothing to them. But to me, it was such a revelation. When things are gone, they are really gone. So insight is not this little idle thought. You know, it really goes deeply into the being somewhere. Another time, I had a a very big insight that I could only express by saying the words... Nothing is mine. And this insight brought with it a tremendous amount of ecstasy. It was like an ecstatic realization. Nothing is mine. (laughs) This again, you say this to an ordinary person and they look at you like, you know, what's wrong with you? Nothing is mine. Yeah, lady, well, uh, can I have your car, you know? (laughs) Hand over your house keys or... Uh, the, the, the words of the mind don't always uh, have the subtlety of, of language that these insights need, but they do make an imprint. Now, this is not to say that um, when I had that insight, nothing is mine, that I never again since then you know, have had any moment of of not, not feeling loss in my life or feeling grief at something that is lost. That's not true. But something in my being has registered nothing is mine, and that actually is good news. It's news I can rest in. It's news that brings freedom. Thinking about or letting the um, impact of insight seep into our being is an ongoing process. Most recently, I have been um, really um, seeing a lot about aging, really seeing a lot about aging, and how, on a certain level, for me, Aging is a continuing loss of identity. It's a loss of certain physical attributes that while I had them, I thought were me. It's a loss of a kind of identity. It's very 
It's very interesting. It's easy to read about it. Maybe it's easy for you to sit there and listen to me. But when it's happening to me, you know, it has a whole different kind of import. The loss of this identity of a physical self. This person that I used to be is rapidly disappearing, if not already gone. And I don't see her coming back unless there's going to be a facelift or something rather dramatic. And I don't happen to really believe in facelifts, even though occasionally uh, one of my other Buddhist teacher friends, we laugh about it. You know, is it okay for a Buddhist teacher to have a facelift? This is kind of an interesting question. Given the complexities of our particular time and culture, it's, it's kind of an interesting question to play with. I will assure you that I am not going in that direction because I'm too smart for that. You know, it's like trying to outwit something that cannot be outwitted. I know that. So integrating this insight into my life is part of understanding the truth of change. And we all do it in different ways through the experiences which our life brings us. Integrating this amazing uh, changing life we live. So tonight I'd like to talk a little bit about how it is that we view change and suffering and the truth of no self, how it is that we view these insights when they arise. And I'd like to look at each of these three characteristics from two points of view, and I think you will be able to find them in your experience. I know I can find them in my experience. We can look at the truth of change from the point of view of the personal self, That I call the liking-disliking mind. The part of us that knows what it likes and what it doesn't like, and is very clear about that. And then there's this other aspect of our being that we begin to tune into in practice, and that is the aspect of awareness. The natural, wakeful presence that accompanies us that is here with us on our journey. As one of my teachers says, awareness is what we know before we know what we know. We'll get back to this a little later. It's what we know before the mind comments. It has a knowing quality. So the personal self is this liking-disliking aspect of ourselves, and awareness is mirror-like wisdom. It sees things simply as they are, without elaboration or interpretation. And unlike the personal self, awareness is not invested in any particular outcome. 
when we can rest in this quality of just seeing what is true, moment to moment, we are actually seeing with the eyes of wisdom and compassion. We are seeing with the eyes of the Buddha. So there is suffering. This was the discovery of Buddha. There is suffering. We can look at two aspects of suffering, the unavoidable pains of the body and the torments of the mind. When any of these arise, how does the personal self react? Often with judgment, often with dislike. I don't like this. Something must be wrong with me. I need to get rid of this. Or blame. Blaming something in the environment. That person made a noise. Or I don't like when you say that to me that way. It's your fault that I'm feeling angry. And the personal self gets very busy with um, conclusions about ourselves or about others, that there's either something wrong with me or there's something wrong with the world or there's something wrong with you or I'm a victim, this shouldn't be happening to me. And for those of us who are on a spiritual path, these torments of the mind and body lead us to seek improvement, lead us to construct agendas for change. And as we practice, we see that there are ways of liberating ourselves from these torments, but they're not the obvious ways of the liking-disliking mind. Now we can look at the truth of suffering from the point of view of awareness, from the point of view of awareness. Looked at in this way, these the presence of suffering in our minds and in our bodies is like changing weather. They're like impersonal manifestations of the human condition, a display of different weather. Each mind state that arises has its own nature. Not necessarily does it mean something about us, but it can be seen instead as a teaching about the nature, the nature of fear, the nature of anger, the nature of grief, the nature of loneliness. As many of you are learning, when you fully open to these experiences, when you don't get caught in your reaction or self-judgment or blame, when you fully open to these experiences, you begin to know the nature of all of this, the, these different kinds of mind states. You know, and once you know the nature of fear in yourself, you know the nature of fear, period. You know what it is like for others when they are caught in fear. One of my favorite stories is uh, of the Buddha on the night of his awakening when it is said he was visited by Mara and um, 
tested. His determination to be free was tested by Mara by uh, trying to bring these torments of mind up in him, lust and anger and fear. And the Buddha sat there and spoke to each of these mind states. To fear, he said, I know you. I know you. You are fear. That's all. You cannot dissuade me from my freedom. The same with anger, the same with lust. I know you. You are lust. I know you. You are anger. It's just that ability to recognize what is present without taking it personally, without getting caught in our patterns of reaction, of fear, of liking, of disliking, of avoiding, of blame. So from the point of view of awareness, suffering is. It's just is. It's nothing to be taken personally. Sometimes awareness is likened to space, like the space in this room. Is the space in this room affected in any way by what appears in it? Does the space in this room have an opinion about whether we do square dancing in here or uh, we sit quietly? No, it has no preference. It's simply the container or the way that our experience is held. Awareness has no preference. It is not in any way affected by what occurs in it. So this teaching of uh, seeing our suffering from another vantage point is tremendously liberating. When we even touch a few moments of it, we begin to sense its potential. Then there is the truth of anicca, of change. And with change, there is a kind of unreliability and unpredictability. We know things are going to change. We begin to get a sense of that. But we're never sure in what direction. All things which come into existence either end or perhaps turn into their opposite. The eight worldly conditions of success, failure, praise, blame, gain, loss, pride, shame, pleasure, pain. Much of our worldly lives are spent cycling through those experiences and seeing the truth that we tend to at some point, touch all of them. We have little or no control over how things are going to turn out. Now, from the point of view of the personal self, this is very hard to bear or even to accept the truth of change. 
the personal self thinks it can outwit the law of change and make things go in the way it wants them to go. So it gets very busy planning for contingencies, trying to control outcomes. In many ways, the personal self sees phenomena as a definition of self. When things are going well, when changing conditions seem to be favorable, it gives us a sense that we're doing something right. When things are not going so well, it gives us another sense of ourselves, like that we must be doing something wrong. We look for a kind of confirmation of ourselves or a definition of ourselves in how things are going. And in that, we are looking in the wrong place, actually, for a sense of identity and completion, because we will never find it there, because things will be continually changing. Now, from the point of view of awareness, we see instead the futility of all of this, the futility of trying to control outcomes, of trying to hold on, of trying to grasp what cannot be grasped. We see actually that there is a lot more at work in our world than the liking and disliking of the personal self. There's a saying from the Ojibwe tribe. Sometimes I go about pitying myself, and all the while I'm being carried by great winds across the sky. There's always a lot more going on than the little personal self can see or recognize. gives us a sense of the bigger picture and actually allows us to rest at ease in the midst of changing conditions. Awareness knows that everything self-liberates. I love that phrase. Everything self-liberates. When something arises in our experience that we don't like, we can take refuge, actually, in the truth of change, knowing that eventually it will leave on its own. It will self-liberate. There is a story um, I heard once that also um, kind of illustrates the possibility of an attitude to change that is quite different. And it's the story of a saint, a a sadhu, in Rishikesh, India, whose practice um, is to, every morning, go to the waterfall, stand by the waterfall, stand or sit by the waterfall all day, just being present with the waterfall. That is his practice every day. And at the end of the day, he says, he bows to the waterfall and he says, well done, well done. 
Now can we do this to ourselves, to our minds and our bodies as they cascade all day long? Could we just have that attitude towards the truth of change? Well done, well done. Then we come to the third characteristic, that of anatta, the fact that there is no separate independent self running the show. As we sit here, we know there is a body, there is a mind, and it is functioning quite well, actually. But we have not found yet a locatable self. In the last month of teaching, they talked about... um, the five skandhas, remember that? I think Guy talked about it. The five heaps that make up our bodies and minds. There's the body, feelings, perception, mental formations, and consciousness. And the Buddha said, the body is not self. The feelings are not self. The perceptions are not self. The mental formations are not self. Consciousness is not self. Nowhere is there a self to be found. How can we experience this a little bit tonight in our own practice? How could we investigate this? I'd like to take you through a little bit of a a journey, if you will doesn't require you to do anything special, but I'd just like to take a little journey through the body and the mind with you. Because the truth of non-self is nothing that we can conceptually grasp. We need to actually, many, many times, test it in our experience, find, it, find the truth of it in our experience. <clears throat> So maybe this will be in that direction. So here we are with these bodies which breathe. We have been breathing since we were born. We will breathe till we die. And we could see, and we actually touch a lot in meditation, this quality of the breath breathing itself. Have you felt that, how just the breath just breathes itself, that there's no one directing or controlling it. We can direct it or control it for brief periods of time. But while you're sleeping, you're breathing. While you're doing many things and not thinking about it, your breath is just breathing itself. There's no one making it happen. In the same way, we can can notice all the sense doors. We can go to the sense door of seeing. Seeing is occurring right now, if your eyes are open. But there is no one making it happen. Who is seeing? Is there somebody behind there saying, now you have to look here, look there, see color, see shape, see form? No, seeing is seeing. It's all happening by itself. There's no one making it happen. The same with tasting, the same with hearing. Hearing is happening by itself. 
just hearing all by itself. So there's smelling, tasting, hearing, sensing, sensations in the body, just coming and going on their own. Now, we may get a sense of this on the level of sensory experience, how easily and impersonally all the senses function. Everyone breathes, everyone hears, everyone tastes, everyone sees. It's a function that our bodies do. We just are... That's how they, they, they work according to their own laws. Now, when it comes to our thinking and our emotions, we all too quickly assume a me to whom all this thinking and feeling relates to refers back to. We might think, well, that's great. Everybody hears, everybody breathes. I can sort of get that. It's an impersonal function. But my thoughts, aren't they about me? I mean, not everyone thinks my thoughts. Well, are you so sure about that? Maybe they are. We think our thoughts are deeply personal and deeply unique, and that they are incredibly significant and meaningful about me. But let's look at this and just investigate a little bit. How personal are our thoughts? For example, I heard the other day that there are something like 6,000 languages on the planet at the moment. Actually, we're losing languages because of globalization and the world shrinking and all that. But 6,000 languages, that's quite a few. And each of those languages has words. Most of us probably, well, I'll ask you, uh, how many of you think in a language other than English? Or do any of you think? A little bit, huh? Okay, so we could say that most of us in this room, aside from Karush, think in English. Now, how did this come to be? If we had been raised in India, we might be thinking in Tamil or Hindu in Hindi. If we'd been raised in Afghanistan, we'd be thinking in... Uh, I forget the name of the... the language there. We would be thinking in other languages if we had been raised in other countries. Not only do we think in English, we only think in English. I mean, if I said to you to have a few thoughts in Hindi, you probably wouldn't have too many thoughts. Not only that, but we only think in the words that we learned, that we have accumulated over our lives. If I don't know the meaning of the word profligate, which I actually don't, um, I'm not going to be having a lot of thoughts about (laughs) using that word, am I? We can only think in the language that we've learned, and we can only think with the words that we know. We were taught these words. They came to us through other people. So not only did we learn language and words 
in the way that we were raised, we learned what it was important to think about and what it was not important to think about. So that if um, I had been raised, for example, as a peasant in Ladakh, I would probably be thinking about other things than I think about as a white Western resident of Marin County. We are very culturally influenced in what we think about. We tend to think that our thinking is, you know, kind of personal and perhaps even very unique. But then, of course, uh, when we have deep experiences, like my experience of of change and all I could say was when things are gone they're really gone you know that didn't sound to others as something you know really highly unique so it's it's interesting that our our very language doesn't always represent in a way that is that unique our experience it comes out sounding kind of trite kind of predictable How many of you have had a highly unusual creative thought in the last 24 hours? Anybody? I can imagine that perhaps you've been thinking about, you know, how it is being here by yourselves, all the old yogis have left, and some of your abandonment issues may be coming up, and fear of change, and what it's going to be like tomorrow and all these new people come in, you're already feeling aversion to <laughs> having to deal with them. Or, or maybe you're thinking about the weather, the beautiful day, or about your body, or about the food. The lunch today was so great. and You know, kind of like that. In fact, there was this study at Stanford that showed that 93% of our thoughts are actually the same thoughts that we had the day before. <laughs> So there's not a lot, we, we have to leave the possibility for unique and creative thinking, but, you know, it, it, it's not a daily occurrence for many of us. So here, here's all this thinking that's going on. And, of course, as we sit, we notice that thoughts have a life of their own. They come and they go rather whimsically. And just as we can control our breathing for some limited period of time, we also can, it is true, to some extent, control our thinking. We can determine to think about something. We can make a list to to know what to shop for. But even when we're trying to control our thoughts, sometimes, you know, our thoughts have a mind of their own. I'll give you an example from a period of uh, practice where I was doing metta practice for a period of six weeks and uh, when you're doing it intensively you're repeating the phrases over and over and over again all day long, all day long so I was doing the phrase may I be free from harm how many times I'd said it? thousands probably by now and suddenly I heard coming through my mind may I be free from Harry <laughs> And it would just repeat, may I be free from Harry? And I would think, who is Harry? I don't know a Harry. And I I certainly don't 
really care about being free from Harry. Or all all beings may all beings be free from Harry. You know, it got it got really humorous to think what where was this coming from? I have no idea. Now, from the point of view of our personal self, all of this thinking is who we are, isn't it? If I'm not my thoughts, who am I? We believe most of what our thoughts are telling us, and especially the conclusions that we draw about how we're doing. Have you come to any conclusions about yourself today? Can you see how you're buying into them? All of this thinking actually substantiates the illusion of this personal self. Actually, from the point of view of the personal self, the idea, this Buddhist concept of no self, makes no sense. Makes no sense. It makes no sense to the mind which knows what it likes and what it doesn't like and is completely invested in how things turn out. The idea of no self may sound absurd. It may sound cold, it may sound uncaring, unfriendly, detached, fearful. It may seem even quite humorous. A man named Stephen Butterfield tells this story about his father. He wrote, um, When he was old, I tried to introduce my father to the Buddhist doctrine of emptiness. I thought it would ease any anxiety he might be having about the imminence of death. Ultimately, I began, you never were. (laughs) Maybe not, he said, peering over the rim of his glasses, but I made a hell of a splash where I should have been. (laughs) It makes no sense to the liking-disliking mind. Ramana Maharshi gave this analogy. He said, we act as if there is a self. And in doing so, he said, we're like the person who gets on a train. And the train begins to move. And instead of taking a seat, we stand in the aisle, holding our suitcase in our hand and walking. That's what we imagine is needed for this life, that we are the doer. Now, from the point of view of awareness, what does this self seem to be? It appears it exists. It's not that it doesn't appear. We're all here. We can be sure of that. But it doesn't appear in the way that we imagine. It appears rather as the coming together of karmic causes and conditions, moment to moment. It appears as a fiction, momentary, insubstantial, fleeting. 
It appears like a rainbow or a dream or a mirage. I like the image of the rainbow. They even talk in the Tibetan tradition about the rainbow body that the lamas who have practiced a lot, when they leave the body, a rainbow stays behind. Maybe that's what we all are, essentially, is rainbows. We would not say that a rainbow does not exist, would we? We see a rainbow, we wouldn't say that doesn't exist. But neither would we say that it exists as an enduring, solid substance or reality, would we? But we would not deny its reality either. It appears and disappears based on causes and conditions. The Buddha said, suffering is, but no sufferer is found. Nirvana is, but not the one who enters. So I'd like to go back to this question that I raised at the beginning of my talk. What do you know before you know what you know? Before the mind interprets or puts a label or comments, what is present? What is present before thought, between thought? What is present when all thoughts cease? This is a place to explore, to look directly, and not get busy trying to find the experience you think you should have, but actually see what is true. Our insight practice, then, is to see again and again these three characteristics, how they are displaying themselves all the time in our experience, moment to moment, and to see how the personal self reacts to them when, they, when we see them, what story it tells when suffering appears, when change appears, when we begin to get a hint of no-self, to see what view of reality the personal self is trying to construct based on what it perceives, and to see also from the point of view of awareness, the play or the dance of these three characteristics, how they show themselves and how we can rest at ease in awareness, not being fooled by their magical display, but knowing the truth. Ah, change. Ah, suffering. Ah, no one here. This is actually a deepening of practice. This is not a talk that I would give to people who hadn't been practicing as long as you are, because it it is not a talk that is easily uh, communicated or perhaps received. But you have been practicing here now, as I said, for a month or two weeks at least. 
you are beginning to touch these places. You can begin to see the truth of what I am pointing to. And we can also see how a deepening occurs as we move from the view of the personal self to the view of awareness. That even small moments of just seeing moment to moment things as they are can have a very huge impact on us. When we perceive through the eyes of awareness, our thinking actually changes. Our view of our lives changes. Our view of our purpose in being here changes. Let's sit together for just a moment. This talk was given by Anna Douglas at Spirit Rock Meditation Center on March 1st, 2002. It is an offering of the dark. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.